Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. I'm Joseph, and today I'm very excited to have spoken with Professor Kurt Gray about what drives our moral judgments, how we reason about the morality of non-human agents, the factors that underlie moral disagreement, and how can we bridge partisan animosity. Dr. Gray is an Associate Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His research lab is called the Deepest Beliefs Lab, and he investigates people's deepest beliefs and why they matter for society and organizations. He also directs the Center for the Science of Moral Understanding, which uses interdisciplinary science to bridge social divides. Let's get into it. Professor Gray, thank you so much for joining me for the talk today. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so uh, I know that you are a social psychologist and you have done extensive work studying morality. Uh, So I thought that we could just begin by getting at a working definition of what morality is. I know that as a layperson, we have this folk understanding of what it is. So it's something to do with right and wrong. And it's somewhat involved in the political domain or when we think about religious conversations or also just broadly in the social context, we tend to have these rules and regulations that seem to be relevant to right and wrong. Um, So I wonder whether in your research, you've done something that tries to get at this common denominator or at this essence of what morality actually is. (laughs) You said the word essence, which makes me think of a paper, which makes me think you're leading me somewhere. Um, So I guess first I will say that I don't know how quite how I feel about definitions in science. And I think that spending too long thinking about how to define it in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions, which is what philosophy often tries to do, can lead us a little bit astray, right? So what's the definition of life? You can debate that until you're blue in the face. Do viruses count? I don't know. But at the end of the day, people still got COVID, you know? So I think that there are some concerns about worrying about a definition. But that's different than an essence. (laughs) Um, I mean, so an actual definition is maybe objective. But I think that in people's mind, there is a sense of what drives most of our moral judgments, whether that's related to politics or people's personal lives or any kind of moral judgment. And that is about perceptions of harm. So I think whatever we might define it objectively, I think when the mind kind of computes what's wrong in the world, I think they make that judgment through through understanding what's harmful in the world. So that our perceptions of harm are the basis of our perceptions of immorality. Uh, This is interesting. So I have read a little bit of the literature in moral psychology, and I know that they are, I don't know whether these are different theories uh, revolving around what exactly is involved in the moral domain. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is this notion of moral foundations. And I know that in moral foundation theories, there's this idea that, you know, moral concerns may involve values that focus on the individual and like harm is one of them, but it also goes beyond that where they talk about mining values like purity or authority. So I wonder whether your your conception of morality as fundamentally involving harm is orthogonal to these other theories or whether it also encompasses them in some way, even if it's some sort of loyalty value, there still has to be some harm involved in it for it to be considered some moral judgment or violation of some sort? Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think moral foundations is a popular topology. So (laughs) it's nice to divide the world into various bins. It helps us put names on things and putting names on things helps us to, to discuss it. And I think it's also a fair point that there are many values in the world. So there's maybe a hundred values. I don't know, a thousand values, right? Um, You can have values like 
punctuality, you can have industriousness, you can have self-reliance, you can have restraint, you can have chivalry, valor, honor, right? We could spend this entire hour just throwing value names out there. And I think sometimes there are values that are more important to different people and to different communities. I don't think that there are, are five sets of values only, right? I think there, there are many and the, and the world is rich and the moral world is rich. Um, but I think for a value to become moralized for someone, I think someone needs to tie the violation of that value to harm. And so if you think that punctuality is an important value, for instance, then you need to think that being late is harmful. And you can even imagine that within people's lives, there's variability with different kinds of uh, how much they moralize value. So if I'm late to drop off a student's college admission essay and they don't get into college, I'd say that that's harmful and people think that's wrong. But if I'm five minutes late to a party, I don't know, right? It's just a chance to let the, let the beer cool down a little bit. And so I think that there's lots of different things that people care about um, and those are moralized by by being paired to harm. I think the, the way to think about the kind of like moral foundations theory from, from my theory, which uh, I've called kind of dyadic morality, but you could just call it a kind of harm-based morality, is that moral foundations theory is kind of from the outside, right? It's like a, a, a researcher or a set of researchers who say, look, I'm going to look around the world and I'm make five bins and I'm going to put you know, these things into these five bins. And it turns out that there's actually not five bins, there's only two in the data. We can talk about the kind of statistical failings of moral foundations theory. But I think from, from my theory, right, it's from the inside. I study how the world is, a, is, a, is in many ways subject to perception, like the minds of others. And so morality is, when understood from the inside, is about harm. If you ask people what they think is immoral and, and why, they will say it's about harm. They will make judgments based on harm. Different cultures make judgments based on what they see as harmful. So I think it's true that there are different values. You can bin them in five or three or four or six different bins. But I think if you're trying to understand how the, the mind actually makes moral judgments and how people perceive the moral world, that's through harm. Uh, you hinted at this earlier, and I'd just like to make it a little bit more explicit. I know that you have a paper titled The Myth of Harmless Wrongs. And so there are lots of cases where it's very clear that someone hasn't directly caused harm to someone, but still someone, I suppose, might make a moral judgment about that situation. Uh, so is your argument that even when we don't explicitly think about harm or we're not directly perceiving harm, we are still implicitly considering that harm has occurred in some sense? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and yes, I think that harmless wrongs are a myth. But let's let's take a step back and and kind of cover well, what, you know, I, I mentioned let's not define morality, but I say let's define morality. Let's talk about the characteristics of morality. And so the characteristics of morality are that it's an intuitive perception, right, that goes along uh, a continuum. Right. So you can have things that are not immoral, like jogging, a little bit immoral, like littering, uh, pretty immoral, like maybe uh, cheating on your spouse, and very immoral, like perpetrating war crimes in the Ukraine, right? Uh, so there's a whole gambit there of, of morality. And so it's useful to think of those three things, a continuum, intuitive, and perceived when it comes to morality, and just think of those things as they pertain to harm as well. So harm is a matter of perception. It varies by people, just like morality varies by people. Harm is intuitive. You just kind of like see it, you know, when you see it, you kind of know it when you see it rather. Uh, and it's a continuum. So you can have things that are a little bit harmful, like, I don't know, saying something nasty to per a person, a little bit harmful, punching them, and very harmful, like perpetrating war crimes in Ukraine. All I'm arguing is that perceptions of harm are the very, very same things that, that drive perceptions of immorality, right? So there's a kind of like similarity here between them. And so when people talk about harmless wrongs, you have to ask a question. In fact, you have to ask two questions. One, harmless to whom, right? Is it harmless to the experimenter who makes it up? 
right? Like a moral psychologist sitting alone in their office, like chuckling over the idea of someone having sex with a chicken or burning a flag or something like that. And how harmless are we talking, right? It, surely it's the case that having sex with a chicken is somehow more harmful than going for a jog on the beach, right? I mean, certainly if a babysitter told me, hey, look, this morning I went for a jog on the beach, I would say, great, you know, here are the kids, we're going out for dinner. And if a babysitter said, hey, this morning I had sex with a chicken, which is a harmless wrong often use, I don't know if I'd be ex as excited of saying, hey, here are the kids, we'll be back after dinner, right? I mean, I feel like that's something that let's suggest the kind of like they're capable of harm, they're doing strange things, and they might do harmful things with my kids. And so I think coming back to the question of harmless wrongs, I think there are no kind of absolute harmless wrongs. Instead, there are things that are more or less harmful and more or less harmful to different people. And once you understand kind of those variability in, in perceived harm, you can make sense of variability in morality. So moving a little bit on from harm, there's another dimension of, I don't want to call it a dimension, I'll say ingredient of morality, at least that I have extracted from skimming your papers, which is something about the presence of a mind or an agent of some sort. Um, and I'd just like to also make this a little bit more explicit, um, especially because we do apply moral concepts to things that don't appear to have uh don't appear to be human even, don't appear to have minds in the way that humans have, like machines and robots, because, you know, this is the 21st century. Um, so I'm curious about how, how you think we're able to also apply these moral concepts to non-human minds or agents, or how this agentic aspect comes into morality. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's, it's also important to kind of further clarify what what I mean when I talk about harm, it's not just the mere presence of suffering. We kind of define it in papers as having three ingredients. One, suffering, right? Like a kid, a kid crying. Two, some act that causes the kid to cry. So like abuse. And three, a person who's doing that, right? Uh, a, an intentional agent. And so if you think of the, the most canonical or typical moral things like child abuse, you know, you've got like some angry adult hitting, which is the act, right? A child who's suffering. They're, they're the kind of like vulnerable victim or patient, right? So you've got a perpetrator and a victim in a way the perpetrator is harming the victim, right? That's your typical immoral thing. And so it's useful to, to kind of like, you know, make that explicit and to say a lot of the things that the moral psychology world is arguing about are like the fringes, right? Like the 1% the, the of the more, like if I say, look, most things that people care about in morality, murder, assault, theft, rape, fraud, those are dyadic, those are harmful, right? They have one person causing damage to another person, whether physical or emotional, right? People say like, yeah, that's, that's obvious, right? That, that's what the law is about, protecting, that's what like everyday things about. And so the, the fact that moral psychology is wasting uh, thousands of papers on, um, you know, having sex with chickens <laughs> is, is at least something we should think about, right? It's something we should think about. Like, look, if we're trying to understand everyday life as social psychologists, like let's not spend so much time on these like weird cases, right? Uh, that, that psychologists imagine are important, but actually uh, are not. So let's just put that aside, right? We understand 99% of morality as based on harm. And again, that template of harm in our minds, right, is like this a perpetrator causing damage to a victim or an agent and a patient is something uh, I call it to. And so that agent is typically a person, right, in all these cases, but it not always a person. It could be a group of people, like a corporation, right? So uh, Amazon has been, right, like trying to union bust in New York recently. And so there's like a, you know, a powerful corporation trying to like harm another group of people. People often think that that's immoral, depending on your political leaning, uh, I suppose. Uh, but it's not always a person. Sometimes it can be, I don't know, an animal, right? So uh, a pit bull bites a kid, right? People think it's the owner, but sometimes people blame the animal as well, 
or a robot, for instance, uh, you've been thinking about, right? Like a robot could maybe harm someone. You could get an autonomous weapon system that could harm someone, a self-controlled drone. And we're still kind of in the domain of sci-fi here, right? Um, but the, the point is that the more people ascribe a, a mind to technology or an animal or a person, the more they see it as responsible and, and deserving of blame for doing something wrong. And so as our understanding of AI and, uh, and robots change, as we think of them more as people and less as you know, mindless machines, our concept of morality will change as well. Yeah, and I know that there was a, a paper that I skimmed where you and a bunch of other researchers looked at how similar machines look to humans and how that affects this thing we call the uncanny valley, how scary they seem to be, or I suppose how much of these human moral concepts we we ascribe to them. And one of the suggestions was also like, if we make them look less like humans, maybe we will have less of this uncomfortable, strange feeling when we perceive these like humanoid robots. Or also, interestingly, this is also from a blog post that you wrote, that the fact that machines seem to be so close to humans, but not exactly makes us more groupy in our behavior. And so we we actually are, are more united as humans against this like outgroup of machines. So yeah, I, I just thought this whole mind thing played in really well when we started thinking about machines and like how closely or how far they resemble humans. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about, about machines, social robots. I mean, they, they are so interesting because if you think about all the other agents we interact with, right, other people, kids, dogs, God, right, ghosts, those are, you know, less obvious agents, but we all kind of have a sense of what each of those agents are and it kind of stays the same. Right, a little bit. I mean, people might disagree about the uh, existence of God, but even if you're an atheist, you're like, yep, if God exists, God's all powerful, has all these things, right? All these characteristics. But robots are weird because humans make them. They're the only agent that humans make, unless, you know, babies technically we make, but, you know, they're kind of their own thing. Um, And so we make these robots and we make them in our image, but not fully human. Uh, And so there's kind of like this fundamental ambiguity about what a robot even is, you know, and robots are further designed to replace other agents, right? Like you're designing a robot to work in a factory instead of a person. You're designing a a robot to be a Roomba to replace, you know, a person vacuuming your floors or a robot pet, right? Or a robot lover, right? Right. There's all sorts of things that people make robots. And so it's really hard for people to kind of make sense of how, to interact with them and how to think of them, especially because uh, their minds are not quite like humans, but made by humans. And their minds are changing as they're becoming more sophisticated. And so you hit on an interesting point, right, about as they become closer and closer to human, this ambiguity increases. And we're really kind of not sure how to deal with them, right? Because we know they're not human, but they're so human that, that we treat them as human. And yet, right, like, what do we do if someone's like almost but not quite who we are, right? It creates this fundamental ambiguity. And so you talk about the uncanny valley. And so that's the idea that as a robot becomes more human, it becomes creepier because we think that robots, you know, something made of silicon and metal should not have the ability to feel, feel love, lust, fear. And yet a human appearance makes it seem like they do. And so we're, we're left kind of like grappling with our, our categories about the world, right? Dumb robots with an emotion on one hand and then people with emotions on the other hand. And as robots become more human, we might have to revise those. And I think that's, that's not easy for people to do. Yeah, this is going in an interesting direction that I'd like to actually get to a little bit much later on where we talk about all this research into social groups the fact that populations have certain heterogeneous features and and the fact that when people are in different groups, they seem to behave differently and so on. But before we get to that, uh, I guess for now, why don't we start by talking about the Center for Science of Moral Understanding, which is a research center of some sort. It seems that you are director of, and I'm curious about it because 
it sounds like when you're an academic, you can direct a research lab, but then you could also have a research center, which could have certain goals. And so I'm actually curious about how something like that could come up in an academic setting. And then we could also talk about the specific goals that you have for the center. Yeah. And and you mentioned earlier uh, offline about kind of thinking about how to make academia accessible to, to new students. And I think it's useful to talk about the structure of these labs, right? Because they're confusing even to my colleagues and collaborators, let alone to anyone kind of entering the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, a psychology lab is just typically the, the PI and their postdocs and their students just doing research, right? The main goal of those labs is to do scientific research and to disseminate that research, typically to other academics, sometimes, you know, to the public by writing op-eds or the occasional book. But many of us in social psychology also has the goals of making the world a better place. So, you know, increasing um, uh, well-being or decreasing disease or um, lessening racial disparities, or in the case of the center, right, creating moral understanding across moral and political divides. And so the kind of founding assumption of the center is that many of the divides we're facing in America today, especially political divides, religious divides as well, though, and in some part racial divides, are about moral disagreement. And so the hope is that by understanding kind of the roots of, of moral disagreement, the drivers of kind of intolerance, and by finding new ways of bridging moral divides, we can turn the dial down a little bit on political animosity in America today. And so the, the center is part, you know, tied to my lab. You can imagine a Venn diagram. So the overlap with the lab, my lab, the Deepest Beliefs Lab, and the Center for the Science of Moral Understanding is research in the lab that focuses on bridging divides. So that's the overlapping part. There's parts of the lab that don't study bridging divides, like work on basic religious cognition, things like that. And then the parts of the center that don't overlap with the lab are more outward facing parts. So we fund a number of scholars who do their own work. So we're a grant making organization. We write a newsletter about political divides that is available for download on Substack. And we also, you know, plan a conference uh, that we're doing this year and engage with a lot of practitioner organizations who have, you know, boots on the ground, as the saying goes, when it comes to bridging divides. So we design interventions to help bridge divides in communities. So that's kind of what the center is about. That, you know, we're funded from Stand Together, this kind of umbrella organization that involves a number of other organizations, including the Charles Koch Foundation. And so they fund the center and some of that center money goes to the lab to fund some other research as well that's related to, to the center goals. So it's a great question. I don't know if that answers it, but it's, it's a little amorphous. Yeah, no, that definitely helps uh, paint a picture of the institutional structure that it has. Um, so you talk about this goal of addressing political and moral animosity, broadly speaking. And I'm assuming this involves things like, I guess, really hot button political issues. Like, I mean, there's the war that's happening right now, or there's like the COVID-19 pandemic, which just was intensely divisive. And I guess I'm, I've seen lots of work that looks at specifically political partisanship in the United States. So it's also very like country specific, but I've also seen work in COVID-19. I've seen work on like stuff in other countries or other cultures. Um, So I'm not exactly sure how to understand what sorts of issues are most pertinent to to moral psychologists who do this kind of research. I don't know whether that makes sense, whether you can shed light on that, or maybe for you personally, maybe it depends on the specific researcher. Yeah, I think, I mean, the thing about COVID is that it's not it's not bound to any kind of nation, right? We're all kind of facing the same threat. And so I think that recommends it in terms of, you know, these big international studies mm-hmm. to look at kind of core psychological ingredients. How do we react to a terrible disease and debate about those diseases? I think also, I mean, psychology, like a lot of academia, is fairly America-centric. And so it's often focused on 
on issues in America. Uh, I mean, I moved, I'm not American. I moved to America to study, to study social psychology and political polarization in America is pretty bad right now for, for a number of reasons, some structural in the States as well. And so I think there's a reason that, that we study that too. There's also a lot of funding organizations that are interested in bridging divides, you know, in making America a better place, but you know, there's polarization everywhere. And I think people are also studying polarization in, in Europe, in Canada, right. In South America, I think there's lots of places. So I think, um, we can kind of separate the kind of basic psychological processes that we study. And I think we're interested in that, you know, across issues and also the, the specific issue that, you know, the case study or context in which you're studying those psychological processes. And I think political polarization is, uh, is a very hot topic right now and it's important and there's lots of other scholars doing it and that creates a critical mass of interest. Would you say that, cause I know there's lots of work on, this idea of people identifying as belonging to different groups and that affecting what sorts of behaviors and and opinions that they have in a way that's almost like artificial. So for example, yeah, just the fact that you belong to a group makes you already favor your in-group and disfavor your out-group. And so in that context, it feels like the differences that people have are perceptual or like not real differences in that sense. It's just that their group membership is biasing them in some way. Um, then there's also this this other way of thinking about it, at least for me, is that people have genuine differences in in like what values they have and so on. And so the conflict represents people actually disagreeing and then they form groups after the fact. So would you say how much of your research or whether you think how much of the research focuses on, on one of these versus the other? Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's a good question. It's kind of funny, right? You're asking like, are, are you an egg person or a chicken person? And I think I'm a chicken and egg person, right? I mean, I think groups can form on the basis of different ideologies. But I also think, as you suggested, that ideology alone is enough to form a group and to influence people's judgments. And I think ideology does influence people's judgments. So if you voted for Trump in the last election, you probably have a specific opinion on, let's say, trade, right? Maybe you're more protectionist now, as Trump was. Um, and that's not a typical policy for Republicans, right? If you look back 20, even 30 years, right, with NAFTA, right? Like, generally, Republicans are more into free, tr- free trade, right? Consistent with the kind of, like, free markets and, and capitalism. So I think your identity shapes your preferences, but I think your preferences can also shape your identity. And, and I don't think any one of those is going to be like the only thing to, to think about. In terms of what I study, I think there's a lot of researchers who do a great job studying social identity as like a mere category membership. I don't typically study that. I typically study the kind of like cognitive bases of many disagreements that of course can be tied back to some identity, but I, I don't examine those. I examine kind of like ways in which there might be similarities across these identities in terms of our underlying perceptions of the moral world or psychological mechanisms that work regardless of your specific identity. Interesting. Okay, so before we get into, because I guess what I'm trying to lead into is is actually ways to bridge moral and political division, I want us to clarify like the presence of the problem or at least the desire to to fix it in some way, to bridge these divisions. I don't know whether you can speak to that because, you know, some people might go, well, it's healthy for people to disagree in some way and have these conversations with each other. But it seems to be that some people think that the level at which people disagree is too much or something, or it's not right. So yeah, could you speak to that at least? What's the motivation for wanting to have less polarization or reduce it in Mm -hmm. some way? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think it's useful to distinguish uh, a couple of different kinds of polarization or disagreement. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, there's disagreement about ideas, about policies, about social goods, about values. And I think those disagreements are good, right? I mean, uh, America is a, is a pluralistic country. I myself, right, believe in the value of pluralism. You don't want everyone to think the exact same thing, typically, 
right? You want some disagreement because out of that disagreement uh, arises new ways of thinking. And that's what a democracy is all about. Like this is why we have people voting, right? Because people disagree and like voting is a way of solving those disagreements and trying to figure out like, well, what's the best way for a country to move forward? And of course it's not perfect, right? And it's far from perfect about like how we resolve these disagreements, right? There's all sorts of structural factors that matter uh, that shouldn't race, power, gender, and so forth. But in general, I think it's good to have disagreements within a country. At the same time, like that's a that's a kind of question of like ideas, but you could also have disagreement that's just like pure emotional, right? Animosity about the other side. So it's one thing, right? Let's say we disagree about something, uh, the nature of morality or something, right? We have a, a spirited disagreement. We both learn from it. We're better off for it. The field advances. But now imagine instead of having this like intellectual disagreement, I just like call you names the whole time and you call me names the whole time, right? We're just like angry and then we hang up halfway through the podcast, right? It's not a great podcast. No one's learning it and everyone's getting mad. And I think that's the problem is kind of affective polarization, right? Emotional polarization, or as we call it, just partisan animosity. And so I think that dial is turned up way too high right now. People are so angry at the other side, they won't engage with them. They won't discuss uh, other problems with them. They just, right, lash out with hate. And so that that is not a great place to be in. And I think that's what we need to, to decrease. Your cat just walked in and that was, mm -hmm. <laughs> I wish this was a video so that the <laughs> listeners could see this. Uh, interesting. One other aspect actually that I'd like to touch on before we get to how to bridge the, the divisions is how these beliefs are actually acquired in the first place. I don't know whether this is a formal part of your research, um, but I have seen some articles here and there on uh, the acquisition of, say, religious beliefs or even some kinds of moral values. And I know that probably lots of people who would do this would be more in the developmental psychology side. But I think that at least for religion, I've seen some work on, you know, whether or not the tendency for people to believe in something supernatural is is something that we have a natural knack for or whether uh, it's just function of the society that we have or that we're born into? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you, you know, I think uh, we're kind of in agreement that everything is like a little nature and a little nurture, right? Like those strong positions of it's all innate can't be true and the strong position of it's all learned can't be true. Um, and I think no matter what theory of morality you subscribe to, I think you just have to accept that nature and nurture are true. So I think there is, you know, I don't think there's there's any such thing as these like evolved, you know, five moral foundations or or something, right, that that prime us from birth. But I do think that there's like basic psychological capacities that combine to give us our fundamental moral sense. And so going back to the kind of nature of harm, right, we care about empathy, we have empathy, right? Even babies have empathy. And so we care about the suffering of others. We understand intentionality, theory of mind that emerges fairly early, you know, false beliefs tasks maybe emerge a little later, but, but we certainly know when someone's looking in a direction, they want something very early. And, and kids also understand causation very early, right? One ball hitting a, another ball. And so those things together, I think, give us a kind of fundamental understanding of our morality, you know, harm, the kind of uh, harm-based diet. And so where we see that harm or who we think is vulnerable to suffering or who we think is capable of intending things, that's a matter of socialization. And so if you belong to a religious family and they talk about God and, and the power of God to do things, then you think that God's a powerful agent, right? Like that's a, a reasonable uh, agent to cause outcomes then great. And if you grew up in a secular household that doesn't believe in God, then it's less likely you, you hear about that. At the same time, if you hear about how your soul is vulnerable to harm, then you think that the soul is something that can be harmed and that you need to protect it and that selling the soul is immortal or sorry, immoral. Um, I also study mortality. Uh, but if you think that there's no such thing as the soul, then right, then you're not as worried about harming it, obviously. So I think all those things together provide a kind of like basic psychological understanding for, for making, uh, acquiring moral judgment. And we actually, there's lots of studies, not done by me, but by developmental psychologists that shows that if you tell a kid it's harmful, 
they'll say it's immoral. And if you tell a kid that it's immoral, six months later, they'll remember it uh, as harmful. So these things are kind of powerfully tied with kids and our families and our cultures. They help us shape our assumptions about what in the world is good or bad, who exists as an agent and what's uh, harmful. Yeah, fantastic. And and one thing that I should have more appropriately mentioned earlier is this work you've done on moral character. The fact that we don't just evaluate uh, actions that people do, but we also tend to evaluate the people who take these actions and that we could classify kinds of moral characters based on this two-dimensional, I guess, structure that you talked about earlier of like agency and experience such that we could have like people who are heroes or villains, or I can't remember the, the other two kinds of characters. And I, it feels like the way you presented it is that this is some sort of universal template for understanding uh, people's moral status or something like that. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about kind of harm and how we use harm to judge the wrongness of acts. Mm-hmm. So things like murder or assault or, manslaughter, which is murder without intention or attempted murder, which is murder without, you know, a suffering victim. But we also care about, as you said, the kind of character of people, right? Because we're trying to evaluate people for, should I use them as a babysitter, right? Do I want to hang out with them? Does, should someone go to graduate school with someone? Or I think their character is like as a, you know, they're a bad person. Uh, There's like bad information about them. And so when we perceive the moral world of character, we're, again, kind of thinking about harm, but we're thinking about three different kinds of people. One, is this a perpetrator of harm, like a villain? Is this uh, a victim, someone who's going to suffer harm? Or is this someone who's going to prevent a victim from suffering from a villain, right? Rescue them. And we call that a hero, right? So we're kind of like world of moral character is really bound by three roles, the villain, the victim, and the hero, um, and so that's the kind of model that, that we talked about in the paper. And we also have a scale using comic book pictures where people get to indicate like how much they're a, a hero, a villain, or a victim uh, on that scale. And so I want to do a plug for that. It's called the Moral Identity Picture Scale. You can download it at my website. Fantastic. Uh, okay, speaking of heroes, I guess this is a good time to give you the chance to talk about the different sorts of interventions or strategies that you have found uh, that could be useful to bridge moral and political animosity, because this is a really serious problem, at least in the in the United States, and lives are at stake. So, yeah, could you speak a little bit about things you've, at least from your empirical work, that seem to work? Sure, yeah. So they there's a few things. Again, the kind of background for it is this understanding that we all kind of share the same moral mind and one really based on kind of an understanding of morality is tied to harm, right? That we're concerned about harm when it comes to morality, and we can leverage that kind of common cognition, harm as a common moral currency, when bridging divides, because that's something we all understand and we all care about. And so the thing that probably has gotten the most play from the center is this PNAS paper on how personal experiences bridge divides better than facts, and it's, a, it's an interesting paper because if you ask a representative sample of Americans, like what's the best way to bridge divides to build common ground between political opponents, they will say, give me the facts, right? Like, I don't want these stories. I don't want editorializing. I don't want like, you know, to hear about what you're doing. Like, just give me some basic facts and then we can use that as a common ground to agree on. Of course, what happens if you give people facts? People do not agree. In fact, they disagree more, right? Because they say, well, that's fake news. That's alternative facts, right? Everyone has their own facts. And so it turns out what's useful is telling people experiences, your personal stories of suffering or of potential suffering. So if if you are pro-gun and I am pro-gun control and you tell me like, that you're pro-gun because of all these statistics that I don't believe you because I say, look, the statistics are really on my side here because guns kill so many people every day, so many kids in the home. Um, And then if you say, look, the reason that I am pro-gun is because I once used a gun to defend myself from someone who's trying to kill me. Well, now I give you more respect. 
right? Because you've got a personal experience, your views, even though I disagree with them, seem rational for you to hold, right? Because you have a personal experience uh, that makes them make sense. And so now I'm willing to have a conversation with you, right? Now I'm willing to interact with you more. And so what we find across a number of contexts is that giving a personal experience about your political views, particularly one that's grounded in the potential for harm or suffering, that increases respect across political divides. And it's not facts or statistics, which is what most people think. And we find it when we look at you know, Fox News transcripts or CNN transcripts. We find it when looking at the Times. We find it looking at YouTube comments on social media. It doesn't matter where we look. Personal experiences about harm engender more respect than emphasizing facts. That's really powerful uh, and interesting. I wonder whether that presented not from the perspective of a personal experience, but you present the same information to someone, something like, hey, someone who is pro-gun is pro-gun because someone close to them got shot or something like that. I wonder whether, yeah, the presence of a, an actual person to, to testify makes you empathize more. And it's really more that you're appealing to their emotions than than their more rational side, that there could be a different side of the argument. I don't know. I'll, I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, so I think that there is a sense that stories are more emotionally evocative, um, but we found that our effects were, were kind of driven by seeing the other person as rational, right? Because it's rational for someone to want to avoid harm and just giving them like a sad story in general does not do it, mm. right? Just being like, oh, like the sad thing happened to me. Don't you feel sorry for me? You might feel sorry for them, but you don't respect them more when it comes to politics. And it, regarding the question of whether it should happen to you or just you know a story you heard, our studies suggest that it's more powerful when it happens to you, I think because people can doubt it less, right? I mean, academics love to talk about what they listen to in NPR, right? And I think those are kind of compelling stories where you hear someone telling you about their experience but the kind of secondhand repeating of those stories is not itself a personal experience. So I think it's very useful for it to be your own experience because then you're speaking from, you know, from your own truth, right? The own experience you have of, of suffering and rather than just like something you heard. Fantastic. Um, okay, just so that we don't run out of time, I'd like to make sure I ask these two questions that we ask all of our uh, guests. Uh, so the first question is, how do you know a question is worth pursuing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think there are, um, <laughs> there are maybe like a couple ways that people go about doing research. Uh, there's like different strategies. So some people may have heard of the fox and the hedgehog, right? Like the fox runs around trying all these new things and the hedgehog kind of like burrows in deep. I think I, I can't tell which one I am because I burrow in deep to morality, but I also try a lot of different things. But I also think that it's just, it's important to just to kind of like try a lot of things just to see if it works, if you can do that, because we can run these online studies. And then once it seems like there's an effect there to, to think about like, well, what's the best case scenario if it works? So let me try to zoom out a little bit. I think the, the thing is, is to be optimistic uh, when it comes to ideas and and almost like, imaginative in some sense, right? Like what would be the most amazing thing if it were true for science, right? Like if we could show that people like get together and like are happy with just with, like telling a story about harm for 10 seconds, wouldn't that be amazing, right? But it seems not true because after all facts are what matter or is it, right? And so we ran studies to test that and it turned out to be true and that was amazing, right? <laughs> But behind this one story uh, of a study that we imagine would be amazing if it worked are another nine things that didn't work and would be amazing if they were true. And in fact, most of the things you imagine, wouldn't it be amazing if it were true, are not true because our mind is basically made to figure out what's true in the world in some sense, right? And so if something seems like crazy, if it works, it's probably not going to work. And so I, I often like to think about one, like what's the most interesting scenario if an idea works, but two, does it matter, right? Like there's lots of little studies you could do that would be kind of like an interesting thing, but 
being interesting. And I wrote a paper a while back with Dan Wegner about, you know, guidelines for interesting research. And I still think those are true, but I think that's not enough, right? We need to study things that matter for the world, like try to make the world, you know, less divided or whatever, right? Or understand like, you know, powerful theories that help explain behavior, right? So it's not enough to be like fascinating. And so you need to have something that'd be interesting if it worked, but also is important for studying ideas. And so those are kind of my, my two checklists for pursuing an idea. One, would it be cool if it came out uh, as we thought uh, or opposite to we thought, you know, I'm, I'm all for being wrong. And two, d- does it matter for science and for society? That's a really good answer. Thank you very much. And second question is, what's your advice for young scholars entering academia like me? Yeah. So one, I think like don't pay too much attention to, to Twitter. <laughs> you know, what matters in academia, you know, in the end is kind of like doing science. And so I would say just like do science, right? Worry less about what people say about doing science and then just kind of do science. That being said, I am on Twitter. So, you know, <laughs> like I'm clearly not following my advice 100%. It's good to learn about what people are saying, but like don't, uh, don't get mired in it. You know, I guess I'll say, maybe two things. One is science is something you do and not something that you are. Um, and so oftentimes you you know arrive in a lab and you're like, well, do science, right? You just like think about like, well, how do I become a scientist? And it's not, it's not like you take a, you know, a, a batch of drugs like Captain America or Dr. Jekyll, uh, you know, and like become a scientist suddenly or Captain America, right? You do it just by like, keep on doing it, right? You like read some things, you think of some ideas, you run a study, you analyze the data, you think about it. You change the study, you run it again, you analyze the data, right? And you just keep on doing that again and again and again. And then all of a sudden, you're a scientist, right? Because you've done science and you published a paper. So I, uh, I have a kind of like incremental, you know, growth mindset about it. You just gotta keep on like doing it and eventually you'll become it. And I guess the second advice uh, I have, and maybe it's like not, I don't know, happy advice, is that um, early success is not good, which seems kind of crazy. And there's other authors who kind of argue this as well in some of these books, right? But like failure can be a good thing, even though it's hard on the ego. And so the first, in my first year, I ran nine different projects. They all failed. They were, they were not they were like half baked, you know, like as baked as I could bake them, uh, which was not that baked. And so that made me very sad, but I kept on running studies and it it made me think like, I need to think a lot and I need to run a bunch of studies and I need to be nimble and I need to keep running stuff. And so the, the second, my second year in grad school, I tried to run a new survey every week. And Ryan, that's like, in a year, like 50 studies, whatever, let's take a couple weeks out for Christmas. And you know, most of those studies failed. Most of those studies failed too. So I guess some of them came out and then I thought, oh no, no. like if I'm going to have like four papers when I graduate, which is like not that many papers from grad school, I need to run more studies. So the summer after I think my second or third year, I ran like three studies a day, every day for the summer. And that's like a hundred studies or something like that. Right. Which seems like insane, but you know, you like make the surveys and and you send out the research assistants with a with a box of candy, and then they come in, they input the data, I analyze them in the nighttime, and then I make the new studies early in the morning. And right, it was like kind of like this frantic but also exciting and 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 really like a generative summer. And you know what? Some of those worked, and the important thing is they replicated those things that worked. Right? It wasn't just wasn't just type one error. But after that, I had you know enough ideas and enough data that I could kind of like pick my bets a little more. But if you're going to go into a new area and do new things, then then you should just be prepared to fail. And that's OK. And then you just need to prepare to to, to run a lot of studies and uh, and find out like what's there and what's interesting. So and if you succeed early, right, it's great. But then maybe you don't have the kind of fire in your belly to kind of keep on rolling when things eventually fall down. So, and again, this is just my experience, this is right, just like how I went through grad school. I think there are probably some people who just like, are like, hey, don't be a loser like Kurt and succeed all the time. Just keep succeeding and then it'll be great. And like, I would love to do that, but 
I can't think of ideas that are that good. Uh, and so I just am left to like study ideas that are maybe half-baked in the hopes that one of them works out. One thing when you're talking about Twitter earlier that I thought is like, I feel like academics have our own version of Twitter of like retweets, which is like getting citations or like getting recognized by other academics, which I don't know how escapable that is, but you always want to be, at least your work to be appreciated and you always are going to be thinking, if not about like random people on Twitter, about like other academics, what they think about what you do, which I guess is something we just have to contend with. I don't know how you deal with it or whether you think we should care about that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a great point. And the things I like about Twitter are finding out about new papers and new research, new preprints, even op-eds that people write. About. Like I, just, I stay up to date uh, on, on things in the field by Twitter a lot. And it's great. I guess the point that I'm thinking about is like the, the kind of like hand wringing uh, of like the negativity. And I think it's important to kind of like keep in mind some of the caveats to our field so we can ever improve it, whether that's in terms of like statistical rigor, you know, uh, racial diversity, intellectual uh, rigor, all sorts of things that I think are important to keep in mind. But I think if it's been an hour and you're going into some like downward spiral about like, is the field over and are we doing the right thing? And like, should I quit even though I'm only a first year? Like, I just think, you know, like you should consider all those thoughts and, and pursue opportunities. But like, if you're reaching a point where like you can't sleep at night and your stomach is, is, is like burbling over because you're so stressed, then like maybe it's time just to put the phone down. True. Sure. Look at they call that doom scrolling. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Don't doom scroll. Perfect. Fantastic. So we have come to the end of the talk. Thank you very much, Kurt, for your fantastic insights. I really appreciate having you over today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great, great to talk. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. If you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics of the podcast, you can click on a link in the survey attached in the show notes or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect to us on Twitter at Stanford SciPod. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so people can find us.